Hi, this is Caden, and this is my daddy's podcast called Lasting Learning. Hi, this is Dave Schmidt, the host of the Lasting Learning Podcast. On this show, we talk to real people with real stories. We focus on the focus and discuss what matters most. Let's go. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Lasting Learning Podcast. This week, we have an amazing, amazing guest joining us. We've got a woman here who, uh, let's just say, kept me on my toes. She, she sent me some writing over the past week that I was reading jaw-dropping. And for those of you that know me, know that to, to get me rattled, to, to get me fired up, to have my jaw drop means that this was some good, good stuff. We've got a woman here who taught in Baltimore Public Schools. She is a writer. She has spoken at multiple conferences. And right now she has a book coming out. By the time this airs, it's probably already out. It was inspired by her relationship as a parent first, educator second. She is all about disrupting the status quo. And she is here so that you can hear her today. Today, we have Suzanne DeMalley here with us. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, I am excited to have this conversation. I am so excited (laughs) because you talk about all of the things that so many others want to talk about, but you are brave enough to talk about. So (laughs) are you ready to go? You ready to have this conversation? I think so, but you're getting me a little nervous now. (laughs) (laughs) It's all good. It's all good. Um, Suzanne, there might be some people here that don't necessarily know your story yet. You do a great job of outlining it in your book, but for the people that haven't picked it up yet, that don't know your your education history, your professional history, your parental history, do you mind just taking us on that little journey real quick? Sure. Um, I graduated from Gettysburg College with a degree in business and became a certified public accountant. Um, and worked for that for a number with doing that for a number of years and then I had three children and when my middle child um, Christopher was in kindergarten he was diagnosed with an auditory processing disorder and that kind of just kick-started a whole change in my life Um, and I'm sure we'll go into it but I really was in an effort to try to understand his problem better I was doing a lot of research and I was uncovering just shocking facts about the inability of children with normal hearing to be able to hear and understand what they hear in the, in the typical classroom that has poor acoustics. So um, that just really got me going and I ended up uh, really just completely changing direction in my life and becoming a strong advocate for um, improve, educating people about the hearing needs of children in the classroom. I really promoted a technology that helps to compensate for the hearing problems that are with young children in the classroom. And after doing that for a number of years, um, really full time, and just 
you know, putting all of my heart into that, I became just more passionate about education. And after four years of having a nonprofit organization and talking to politicians and the national PTA and all kinds of groups to, again, get this technology in classrooms, I said, you know what, um, I think I really want to go back to a dream that I had in high school of being a math teacher. So I went back to school, got a master's degree, and became a teacher and worked in the Baltimore County public school system. So much in that I want to. I know. <laughs> it was Sorry so good. about that. No, that was perfect. That was absolutely perfect. So can we start by just talking through Christopher, um, mm -hmm. your, your middle child, you said in kindergarten, um, diagnosed with an, an auditory, I, I don't remember exactly what the, the diagnosis was, but um, how, how did that come about? At what point does a kindergarten teacher recognize that there might be a struggle? Yeah, well, it was November of his kindergarten year when I went for the typical parent-teacher parent conference to find out how he was doing. And I should point out, he was enrolled in a private kindergarten at that point. It was um, just through the church up the street from us. And the kindergarten teacher just started unloading all of her concerns on me. And, you know, Dave, in my heart, I had had a lot of the same concerns I had that she did. Um, and I just, you know, I... I felt really guilty about thinking that, well, maybe I'm being too hard on expecting him to be doing certain things by this age. And, you know, he was my second child um, out of three and his older sister had always just been able to do things pretty quickly and easily. And, and I thought, you know, maybe I'm just comparing him to her too much. And a lot of people would tell me when I did bring up concerns to, you know, friends or family, they'd say, well, he's a boy and boys always develop slower than girls. And so when she started, you know, bringing up concerns with me um, about reading and even counting, um, just all kinds of things, um, you know, I kind of, I knew, I, I knew, I think in the back of my mind that just something wasn't right. And she just sort of confirmed that for me. Um, but I didn't know what it was, what the problem was. So after kind of talking with her, she recommended that I have educational testing done on him, um, which I did. And the result eventually was that we found out he had an auditory processing deficit. And what that means is his ears could capture the sounds just the way any, any, anyone with normal hearing can hear sounds. But his brain had trouble making sense of the sounds that were coming in. Um, it would confuse them and put them in a different order. Um, it was, he was just processing things more slowly. He wasn't able to discriminate between sounds, which is so essential for phonics and reading. Um, so, and I'm telling you this, um, you know, I had to learn what it meant because I didn't know. Um, when it, we first had the educational testing done on him and this um, psychologist said, I'd like you to take him to an audiologist and have some hearing tests done. My first response was his hearing's fine. Like we have it tested every year at the pediatrician and you know, that's not an issue. And she said, no, I want you to have specific tests for auditory processing. So anyway, we got that diagnosis. Um, and that was kind of step one. And then I had to really, you know, do some research on my own to really learn about what that problem meant, how it would impact his ability to learn. 
particularly in a classroom when you know there's a lot of students and I didn't know where he would be sitting in proximity to the teacher and I started learning about all of these problems that you know I had three children and my oldest um, is three years older than Christopher so she was I guess in third grade at the time and I just was completely unaware of these problems that are impacting every child every day in every classroom um, specifically children do not have fully developed neurological hearing abilities until they're in, teenagers. So what that means is that they need a better acoustic environment to be able to hear and understand what they hear than an adult would need. And they need sounds to be louder and they need them to be more clear. And we're putting children in classrooms, mostly older classrooms, with these heating systems that are clanking away and kids are shuffling their feet and tapping pencils and you know the teacher who knows where the teacher is in the room what the distance from the students and they're missing out on up to a third of what the teacher is saying because of these issues and that's the normal hearing child and then i started discovering that you know about 14.9% i think it was of children actually have a permanent hearing impairment that makes hearing even more difficult when they're in the classroom and then we have all these kids in the elementary schools who have um, a temporary hearing impairment from ear infections, which causes fluid to remain mm -hmm. trapped in the ear. And that disrupts the, the transmission of the sounds. So, and parents, you know, I had three kids, I, we had ear infections, you know, yeah. off and on. And you think that, okay, I put them on an abiotic and it's gonna be cleared out and no big deal, it's gone. Well that fluid can remain trapped in the ear for like a month or two. So we're talking about kids maybe sitting up to eight weeks in a classroom and they're not hearing correctly because of one ear infection. Hmm. So putting all this together, what it meant is our kids are at a disadvantage in a classroom environment um, from being able to hear and understand their teacher. And that's gonna translate into, you know, becoming um, unattentive and, um, just lower academic performance and it will impact literacy. So I learned all this information and I was like, oh my gosh, this is just horrible. And of course, I'm also really focused on trying to help Christopher and what can I do to help him? And I saw a segment on CBS News. It was very short. I think it was three minutes long. And it talked about a technology of having teachers wear wireless microphones and having surround sound speakers in the ceiling. And again, it was only three minutes long. It was filmed in Utah. And it mentioned that, you know, research supported using this to help with academics and literacy and attention and all that. And I, I heard it and I said to my husband, I was like, this is just too good to be true. This cannot be true. And then sure enough, I did further research on that technology and found out, nope, it's actually better <laughs> than what they covered in the three minutes. And there's tons of research that supports that if we put this in the classroom, it's gonna help all the kids. It's gonna help the teacher save her voice or his voice. And it's really also gonna help those kids that are like English language learners who have even more you know, hearing needs than um, the English speaking student. And it's gonna help kids with learning disorders and all those other you know, students that might fall into the academic gap. So it was just kind of like a win-win. So I started advocating for that 
um, initially in the school that Christopher would be going into because um, he was moving from a private kindergarten into the public school system for first grade. And I, you know, I realized this is just bigger than Christopher. This is about all kids. So I started then sharing the information with the Baltimore County um, School Board, which was a very um, exhausting process to go through. And again, I just felt really passionate that this is for everyone. And so then I started to expand it to a national level. And eventually I gained the support of the national PTA on it, which was about, at that time was about 6 million members. And by the end of this whole process, and it was a very long, I'm talking about four years that I really devoted time to this. Um, we ended up getting that technology in school districts really around the country. Um, you know, I, I know for sure we got it in like um, districts in Florida mm -hmm. and California and Oklahoma and Connecticut and others. Um, but I think we got it even beyond that, the states that would get back to me and say, yeah, we because of you, we now put this in our schools. It's powerful, uh, a powerful, powerful story um, that I think a lot of people are listening to and they're saying, wow, you, you really put your money where your mouth is. You know, there's there are a lot of parents out there that advocate for your kids, for their kids. Right. But you went to the, the next, the next level and not even just advocating for your kid's school, your kid's mm -hmm. district, kid's yeah. state, literally all kids everywhere. Yeah. So you, you kind of outlined when you started doing your research and finding the data to support it. And even the, the, the CBS story that mm -hmm. kind of opened your eyes to this, but at what point did you make this decision to say, okay, it's not just about Christopher now. This is about everybody. Was there a defining, okay, I've got to start sharing this. Was it when, and I'm going to speak because I've had a chance to, to preview your book. Mm -hmm. Was it when you started to realize, well, maybe I'm not going to necessarily just see the results here in Baltimore. There's a lot of bureaucracy and um, it possibly some ineptitude for me to, to try to navigate <laughs> here. So yeah. I need to start um, entertaining a larger audience or was it the, almost the other end where it's not just good enough for Christopher. It has to go for everybody. Um, I think it was before that there was a point where you're right. I just sort of said, you know what, I've done everything I can with the Baltimore region and I'm just going to focus more on the national on everyone else. Um, because there was a lot of ineptitude, as you point out, um, with some politicians in our area. And um, anyway, that's a long story. But um, but it's all I, outlined, so people want to read it. Yeah. <laughs> you drop names, everything, book. so it's in the book. It's yeah. In the book. Um, but it was, I think, before that point. You know, I just I saw I saw my son who was bright and capable, and I saw what it did to him to just, you know to not be, as I learned, not be understanding what he, mm -hmm. what he heard. It impacted his communication. It, it made him frustrated. It made him want to give up on learning. He hated school. And, you know, and I realized again, through my research, like on some level, this is happening with many kids, you know, even again, kids with mm -hmm. no hearing issues because of these problems that are just so unnecessary. And the technology that I was advocating for, it was relatively inexpensive. It was the equivalent to about the cost of one computer, you know. So 
it's not a lot of money to put in the classroom and the benefits were, you know, not only for the students, it was for the teachers. And there was research that supported that money would be saved on substitute pay because teachers wouldn't be losing their voices often and have to take off and savings on special education referrals. So I'm like, this is just a win-win, it's a no-brainer. But there was one time when I went to a school, I visited a school in the area because I had heard about the technology and researched it, but I wanted to kind of see it for myself, how it worked. And I found out there was a school like 30 minutes away from me that had the technology in it in some of the classrooms. So I arranged with the principal to go and, and meet with her. And I went with all these questions prepared that I was going to ask her about how it was working. And I realized she didn't really know anything about it. And she actually had the technology in her school, but, but very few of the teachers were using it because she and the teachers were mostly new to that school. Like everybody had kind of moved out since the equipment was originally put in by a different principal and they just didn't understand what they had. And so I left my meeting with her and rather than me going away and learning about something, I had taught her all about this technology and the need for it. And that school ended up becoming a huge advocate for it after that. And I think it was when I left there, I was like, I need to start, I really need to start educating people about this. They need I, to understand it. I love that. And, and I want to circle back to that um, in just a minute. But I, I want to dig into your own education as well. You know, you mentioned that you started this journey and then you went into the classroom. Right. Um, and I can only imagine uh, that your journey into the classroom was yet another <laughs> foundational, pivotal moment in your awakening. So yeah. you, you saw one one lens of looking at Christopher and um, mm -hmm. trying to increase um, the hearing capacity for all kids. I mean, the name of your book is "Can You Hear Me Now?" So I mean, <laughs> it's a, a right. it's a pivotal point in in your professional and your personal journey. But then you walk into your own classroom in your own school where you start off as a long term sub and then you became a full time teacher. And I almost feel like, so first your ears were opened and now your eyes are opened. Yeah. Pandora's box has been opened in front of you and you start to realize there are more issues here than auditory um, surround right. sound within classrooms. Mm -hmm. And it was like one layer was pulled, peeled off after another, after another, after another, to the point now you are screaming from the rooftops for transformational change from the, from the bottom up. Yeah. Can you talk through that experience a little bit and just how your eyes were opened after your ears were opened? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, my first teaching experience was as a long-term sub, and it was in a middle school near my home where I had actually gone to as a student many, many years ago and where my own children were going. And so I had this perspective of that school as a parent, you know, whose kids were, one had already finished going through there and my, Christopher at the time was in the middle school when I went to do this long-term supposition. And I thought, oh, this is just such a great school. And I thought, I'm so excited for this job. And then I got in there in the classroom and I just realized, wow, I had no idea. I just, and I'm not trying to say it's a bad school because it's not, but what I, how I viewed that school as a parent and what I saw from the inside as a teacher were just so different. Um, you know, just in terms of, you know, some of the students, some of the student behaviors, um, it's just the challenges, just um, the challenges with the curriculum and, and the assessments and the support with special education. Um, 
it was just really, really different again, you know, because I was like you said, I was viewing it with through a different lens at that point. And so that was kind of my first experience of I don't think parents always necessarily know um, everything that's going on in the school, what it's like for their children every day and all the behind the scenes things like with curriculum and assessments and things like that. And then when I got my permanent teaching position in an elementary school, um, again, it was just very, very eye opening for me. Um, that school, when I took the job was just named as a national blue ribbon school. And I saw like some of the reasons why the test scores were really high, because they did a great job of teaching to the test. Um, and so kids were getting grades on their report cards and then the standardized test scores that I don't think reflected their true ability. And I can say that with some certainty because once we started Common Core and switched over to the park assessments, which you really can't teach to the test for park, um, those scores really, really dropped substantially. Um, so that was just a, like a whole nother eye-opening experience for me. So I, I would love to, to dive a little deeper on that concept because I, sure. I think it's, it's completely fascinating. I, I love how um, it, in your book, you, you talk about the Common Core extensively. And to the, to, the, to the reader that doesn't dive in, they might start reading this thinking, wow, she hates the Common Core. You unpack where it came from. You unpack the, the history of it, the politics behind it, mm -hmm. race to the top, Arne Duncan, Obama, like the whole, the whole kit and caboodle is all there. But then you sandwich it with, maybe it's not all that bad. And right. it's interesting to me that one of the... the, the the arguments that you use to say that the school that, that you were employed in wasn't necessarily teaching um, skills that matter is that when Common Core came into play, the school had a hard time keeping up. Mm -hmm. uh, would, would you, is it oversimplistic for me, for me to say that you believe the Common Core um, is a better um, set of standards or better foundational set of skills for students to try to obtain than what was previously delivered in Maryland? Hmm. Um, well, let me go backwards a little bit. I like the reasons that Common Core was started. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those reasons to your listeners were that um, we had states with all different proficiency standards. Mm -hmm. So a child might take a standardized test in Florida and, and score proficient and then move to another state and taking a different test in another state would score not proficient. So we had different proficiency levels and we had lots of standards that we expected kids to know at each grade level and they weren't really deep and they, the kids weren't really apparently getting a deep enough understanding. Um, Common Core, I think, so that's why Common Core came about. And I do believe that we should have a national set of standards because kids are moving around, mm -hmm. families move around, and a kid or child in Maryland or any other state, we should have the same measure of their level of understanding and the same expectation. So I believe that's a good thing. I also really like with Common Core that it really focuses on a deep conceptual understanding, at least in regards mm -hmm. to math. Absolutely. And everything that I'm talking about with Common Core, really my experience is all with the math piece of it. So I'm, 
I really am not qualified to address like the ELA piece. Um, so I really love all of that. You know, <laughs> the problems that I see with Common Core, first of all, there was a tremendous problem in how it was rolled out. Mm -hmm. Um, it was just kind of thrown out there and, you know, states were incentivized to adopt those standards through race to the top, um, which, you know, anytime money's put into the picture, you, it just kind of changes things. Um, but it was, so it was rolled out poorly. Teachers didn't understand it. Teachers, the curriculums weren't really written and tested, especially in my area. I can tell you that was a disaster. Um, and parents didn't understand it and nothing was really being done to educate the parents about why it was being introduced and, and the reasoning behind it. And parents couldn't help their kids with the homework, particularly the math homework. Mm -hmm. So those are a lot of problems with the implementation of it. My one, my one problem is, I think it's, again, goes to a one size fits all. And that's kind of a lot of my problem with um, a lot of things in education is that we have this one size fits all and we have a very diverse student population. Um, you know, everyone's a different kind of learner. Um, everyone has different things going on in their life. It just makes them an individual. And Common Core, what I saw is it didn't always work best for, the kids that really struggled with math and, and number sense. Um, it, it sort of, it was almost like a little bit too much for them sometimes, because for example, in fourth grade, these kids would learn like four different ways to multiply, four different ways to divide. And kids that are really struggling with math, sometimes that was just too much for them. They would just get it confused. They had, some of those kids would have a hard enough time understanding when do I use multiplication and when do I use subtraction or addition? And then we're putting in all these different strategies for using each of these different operations. And it was just too much. Yeah. Um, so that is one of my problems with Common Core. So I, I want to go back to your conversation about the rollout of it. And I, I could not agree more. It, like with most initiatives, something could be yeah. the best idea and the rollout of it mm -hmm. makes it a disaster. I've actually argued for the last 10 plus years that We've had a race to the top long before Obama and Arne Duncan established the race to the top. You go into any high school and look at the honor roll and the race to be the top 10 student or the top 20 student, we have internal races to the top where mm -hmm. you've got students competing truly for scholarship money. They're competing for money to try to do whatever they can do to manipulate or game the system to, to try to, to get money because they have made it to some arbitrary measure of the top. Right. And that, and that same kind of thing, we, we see it play out where students are trying to manipulate GPAs by taking, I was a student that did the same thing. My senior year of high school, I took four hours of volleyball because mm -hmm. that was a great GPA booster for me um, mm -hmm. in a couple of AP classes because it was the game that was played. And right. the same sort of thing happened with the rollout of the Common Core. And then you had other people who might not have been at that top that start arguing, well, it's not fair for us. It's not fair for us. And we start to complain about the system or the way it was rolled out, as opposed to taking a deep dive and looking at things. And I agree with you, the Common Core, deep conceptual understandings. Mm -hmm. We can have lots of debate about whether or not those things are the right things. And we're not going to do that right now. I know mm -hmm. people are already doing that. States all across America are doing it. You, Florida and Texas have peeled back and said they're going to come up with their own version of the Common Core because of the rollout. It's really the Common Core, um, yeah. just with different names on it because they wanted to, to rebrand it. 
-hmm. But I, I'm curious about a, a piece that you said at the tail end of, of your last answer. You mentioned that you think it's a good thing to have a, a common set of standards across the country because of the transiency of, of students, mm -hmm. um, because kids are moving around. We want to have an e uh, equal measuring stick, if you will, to, to compare things. I've said before, a standard is only standard if it's standard. Mm -hmm. So we'll put that there. But yet you also argue against a one-size-fits-all approach. Hmm. Can you reconcile those two things for me? Um, how do you have a common set of standards, mm -hmm. but not have a one-size-fits-all approach? Um, I think you can have a common set of standards and allow a little bit more discretion and autonomy with the educator as to how to get there. Yes. So it's it's not the what, it's the how. Right. The, yeah, I could not agree more. And I think that that's where a lot of people get lost in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So before we went online, I was telling you a little bit about my history and how I, I had a title before, assistant superintendent. Um, I spent a lot of my time focusing on curriculum. I can't tell you how many different people have a different understanding of what that term means, curriculum. Is it a, the person that tells us what to teach? Well, no, because the standards do that. Is it the guy that tells us how to teach? N no, I support you in that. Am I mm -hmm. the guy that simply tells you what resources you can use? Well, possibly. I mean, there's so much confusion uh, along those lines, especially within schools and systems where mm -hmm. teachers are, are evaluated and given directions on how they teach not necessarily whether or not they're meeting benchmarks. We, we use our own lenses on what worked for us and think it's supposed to work for everybody. We focus on best practices and we manipulate that term to mean our practices. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> right. you, you are right. spot on with this. So how do teachers then take a standard that might be a uniform standard from Maryland to Mississippi and say, but I'm going to put my own twist on it in my classroom. What, what is the solution to that? Well, they need a principal or an administration in their school who's going to be supportive of that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that I was lucky to work with, I remember one of my APs, I think was really supportive, like in believing in me that I, I knew what was best for my students. Um, but that's not the case for all teachers um, where they work. So that's, that's one thing that they need. Um, you know, they also, they need the resources. They may have the idea of how best to, to reach a student or a group of students and not have the resources to support those needs. Um, you know, maybe they need more special educators in their classroom helping them out or IAs or, um, you know, just they know, but sometimes they can't always get the things that they need. Um, and then I think the other problem is, and I, I don't know if you're going to go here or not, but we have we may have the best standards set, um, but if we're not going to hold kids accountable for meeting those standards, in other words, if they have if the kids in fourth grade haven't met the fourth grade standards, but we push them on to fifth grade and then they don't meet those, but they get pushed on to sixth grade and so on and so on, that's just that's just kind of throwing everything out. Everything that you've worked for, it just sort of throws it out. Um, so that to me is another really big problem with education that we need to address. So I was going to hold on to that piece, but let's go there now. Um, okay. <laughs> this is a fun one. Um, okay. you know, I, I, well, I can kind of merge it into where I was going to go. You spent a lot of time talking about grades, assessment, mm -hmm. feedback, and now also accountability. Um, so let's just use the example that you just um, described there dealing with a fourth grade student. I know you have a lot of data in, in the book regarding fourth graders and the 
percentage of kids that are proficient at fourth grade mm-hmm. um, using PISA and they the whole nine yards. Right. So when, when you say that we, we push a kid forward, so a kid is unable to, to meet proficiency in fourth grade. Let's just use fourth grade math. Okay. Um, they're, they're not proficient in fourth grade. Would your response be then they stay in fourth grade until they get it right? Is that? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say a standard. Okay. You know, if, they, if, if they're deficient in one standard, I'm not suggesting that we hold them back because of one standard. But when we have children that are unable to independently do their grade level work and they haven't met, um, they, they haven't been proficient in any of the standards um, for that particular grade, I don't see why we should push them on to the next grade because you're just setting them up for failure. You know, Common Core is very specific with their standards and the standards in fifth grade math are assuming that the kids have met the standards for fourth grade math. And if they haven't met those standards and they're starting that next grade level, you're really setting those kids up for failure um, and you're really making it difficult for the teacher. You know, teachers are, should be able to try to fill in gaps and pieces in learning. But when you're talking about a child, and I saw this in my classroom where I had kids testing on a first grade level in math, and they were being promoted to fifth grade, there's a problem. And if you do look at those, that data and the test scores that you were mentioning, if you look at, for example, like the NAEP scores um, for math, you know, I think it was for fourth grade, 41% of the kids in fourth grade were testing proficient. It drops to 35, or I'm sorry, 34% of eighth graders testing proficient in math. And then it drops to 24% of 12th graders testing proficient in math. I mean, that's happening because kids are getting pushed on and pushed on. And that gap gets larger and larger every year. And, you know, I feel for the high school teacher that gets these kids who from first grade on weren't meeting those standards, but kept getting pushed along. How in the world is that high school teacher supposed to really be able to help that child? And what is it doing to the child's self-esteem? Um, <laughs> I mean, I saw that. And you know, the opening of my book um, talks about what really um, motivated me to speak out on these issues is I was at a student support team meeting and um, you know, I had a, a student that was just a, a wonderful, kind boy, um, but he was in fourth grade, a 10-year-old, and he was testing on a mid-first grade level in math. And I, I watched this boy just struggle trying to count 18 little foam one-inch counters. Um, you know, I had tried the research-based interventions with him for six weeks. I wasn't seeing many results with that. His mother agreed with me that it might be a good idea to hold him back rather than pass him on to fifth grade because she saw the same thing at home. And we both saw his self-esteem just dropping and, um, and just really started to just check out of school, um, you know, in my classroom. And, and she was concerned about that as well. And I was at the student support team meeting and my recommendation after sharing the results of the intervention and all my observations was that we not promote this boy on the fifth grade. And the, I had gotten the parent on board, the parent agreed. And the team leader of that meeting 
said, basically said, no, he has to be moved on to fifth grade because we have so many other kids in this school that are far below where he is and they're gonna get moved on. And that's a problem. We're not, we're not, when we do things like that, to me, we are not helping these children to be successful in life. We're not giving them what they need to, um, you know, to fill in those gaps. We're lying to the parents about the capabilities of their children. And, you know, it's, to me, that's a problem. So are you ready for the, the rebuttals? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so go ahead. This is, this is gonna be fun because first of all, um, uh, devil's advocate is, is just being played here. Doing this to try to sharpen the saw because there are people listening right now that I guarantee you there are a, a vast majority are listening to this saying, preach it, preach it, preach it. You're saying what I want to say. But then there are other people that might be asking questions. Sure. So I kind of want to just amplify the conversation a little bit. That's yep. definitely one of your ultimate goals behind the book is Absolutely. starting the conversation. So yes. let, let's kind of model this yes. a little bit. Okay. Okay. So devil's advocate here. So in, in America, especially in a lot of our inner cities and our urban schools, we see um, higher dropout rates than we do at some of our suburban and our rural schools. Um, in some of our urban centers, and I was uh, lucky enough to, to be a principal in an urban school for, for a few years, we see at times um, overaged um, middle schoolers and sometimes overaged elementary schools. For example, um, it's not necessarily uncommon to find 16 and 17 year olds in eighth grade in some mm -hmm. urban centers where there is a history of retention and kids being held back, maybe failing one or two grades, which research has shown actually increases student dropout rates. When a student is in, when they're 16 years old in eighth grade, they start to give up hope. Mm -hmm. when, when we retain kids, does that actually cause a bigger divide and a bigger gap in the possible economic future for kids when we start having more kids dropping out of school as opposed to being socially promoted. I think that's what you were really describing there is that social promotion aspect. You got to stay with right. your people whether you get it or not. Right. It's more chronological. They're they're yeah passing them along by age. You know, I'm gonna probably be really <laughs> getting wild here, but I I would really like to give thought to the idea that we don't even really have grades. There we go. Um, yes. Preach. <laughs> right. That we really have, that we're not, you know, having a first, second, third grade kind of thing that we are more like a college where mm -hmm. you have to, you know, have gotten credit in this course before you take the next math course. And so if you did something like that, rather than just moving everybody in a group by their age through the system, or hold them back as you're bringing out, um, you know, that would allow for maybe the kids that are super strong in reading, you yes. know, they're going, they're getting to those higher reading courses and being able to take those and, 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 and you know, probably being more um, invested in school because they're getting more out of it. They're enjoying the class. It's challenging them more, but if they're struggling in math, there's, they're down in a lower level math class. Um, and I would, really like to see something like that happen with our system. Yes, I, I could not agree more. I mean, that was that, took, that was super easy to get you to, to bring <laughs> I thought we were gonna have to give and take and push and negotiate a little bit for that. Oh. But, but no, I, I agree. You know, I feel like oftentimes in schools, we, we look at things very binary, um, mm -hmm. black and white, left or right, red or blue, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's not, sometimes there is just this reconstruction, this reconfiguration that can take place to solve bigger issues. It, yes. The fact that we have a kindergarten, a first grade, a second grade, a third grade, 
goes back to the Council of 10, 120, 130 years ago, when we arbitrarily came up with proficiencies to help us measure whether or not kids would be prepared for the assembly lines at 16 years old to, st- to go out and start making products, um, mm-hmm. which we are far beyond. So we've refined our standards to, to be more uh, conceptual and um, to measure deeper thinking, but we haven't, we haven't rearranged our construct in, in order right. to h- how we measure that and, and assess that. Exactly. You know, I, I love the fact that you said your, your focus on Common Core, your experience is really on mathematics mm-hmm. and not necessarily reading. There are students that are the same way, that their focus is mathematics and not necessarily reading or right. vice versa. Or right, right. We have this deficit mentality where if a kid is struggling in one, they're struggling in all, or right. they're excelling in one, they're excelling in all, as opposed to really focusing on the giftings and the strengths of the individual student. So- yes, and I also think that we expect kids to be great at everything. <laughs> You know, like it's a, we expect them that they have to be great at math and great at reading and great at science. And then we're moving them along. And, um, you know, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses. And as adults, we, you know, I'm not great at physics. So I would never consider (laughs) like taking any physics courses or going into a career that involved something with that. Um, So as adults, we get to choose, we, we tap into our strengths and that's, where we're going to gravitate to with our jobs and our careers and our hobbies. But with kids, we're like, no, you got to be great at everything. You have to be the athlete and the musician and the scientist and the mathematician and all those. So I I think we put a lot of pressure on kids with that. And I I think if we did kind of change things around the way you and I are talking, it would take some of that pressure off. Yeah. And and to take this even to the next level for those people that are saying, but, but you have to going back to retaining a student fourth grade, uh, the, fifth grade or fourth grade or third grade, whatever the case may be, you know, I I think we also sometimes we start arguing for the wrong argument, (laughs) if you will. The argument isn't necessarily should the kid be held back because they're not proficient now. The argument should be if we move them forward, are they going to be closer to to gaining mastery of whatever their future career, whatever their future holds? Because yeah, the common core, I'll take us back to the original conversation, is rolled out poorly, but it does it does present deeper conceptual understandings to kids. Yeah. However, even with that, we still lack any studies, period, that show a correlation between achievement of common core standards to achievement and career readiness, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Right. So we have this false narrative that a student, when they, if they are successful through the common core, will be successful later on in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a strong correlation, but there was also a correlation to the old standards with the same thing. Kids right. that are good at playing the game can play the game. So what I love is that it's really now this focus on identifying your strengths. You mentioned physics. You're not a physics person, (laughs) but here in the United States and virtually every state, physics is a required course for our high school kids. Right. Algebra two required course for all of our kids. Right. Calculus, AP courses. I mean, we could go on and on and on about, but I'm I'm not going to, because it's not necessarily the focus of your book, but I just, I love the idea that we, we really can start re-examining things and re-envisioning what school can look like. And and that's, I'm glad you're, you're asking all these questions and that you're challenging me on things because that's kind of the point of this book. Yeah. I just want this conversation to get started. You know, I do not have all the answers. I have opinions that are based on my experience, just like anyone else, um, but I don't have all the answers. No one does. We have to start talking and sharing ideas and thinking outside of the box and thinking outside of the, the classroom the way we know it. 
if yeah. we're going to make any productive change. For sure. And, and for people that are reading this, I don't want you to think you're reading this and you're going to think, okay, so now we have to go change all federal and state legislation. We have to go talk to the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Education. You don't have to. You put very tactical and practical, tangible things from the, the classroom educator all the way up to the state level. You talk classroom grading practices, the, the impact that zero has, the, the grading on the mean, lots of things that people that, that know me know that you're speaking my language right now, mm-hmm. but you give people practical tools so they can start to own a change in their own world, in their own yeah. classroom, because that's where it begins. Mm-hmm. So with all of these things, if you, if you had the power and PTA comes and says, we're going to do a big fundraiser for you because we want you to start the model school for us <laughs> and, and you get to reinvent schools. Where do you start? What does it look like, sound like, feel like? What's different about it? Oh, boy. <laughs> Um, well, I would definitely make the class sizes smaller. Mm. Um, I would have more resource help. Um, I would bring in specialists of, you know, we're right now we're expecting the teachers to be the psychiatrists and the social workers. And and I, you know, I was dealing with some very challenging, um, emotional and behavioral issues of the students that I worked with. I don't have professional training in that, you know, I I mean, I did the best I could, but we need professionals um, to help with some of these situations. So I would just try to um, fill the school with resources and smaller classes and um, really give teachers more time. Teachers, people do not realize who are not teachers or they're not married to a teacher, um, just how much time a teacher has to spend outside of school in order to do their job when they're at school. Can, can I just pause you real quick? I think it's yeah. powerful. And I don't even know if you're aware of what you just said. You just, you Probably just, not. <laughs> oh, no, it was brilliant. You connected your last two arguments together in such a brilliant way that in schools, teachers spend all of their time trying to help their kids become masters of everything. And yet teachers recognize that they cannot be masters of everything. Yes. They need specialists to help them out. Yeah. And yet with, we, we do all, we're asking for specialists within a system that requires students to act like there are no specialists. Mm-hmm. It, the irony of that is mind-boggling to me. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're right. No, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. Um, you know, we do, we need more specialists. And again, teachers need more time to, you know, if I, again, if I was creating the perfect school, um, I don't know how I would structure it, but I would give teachers more than 45 minutes of planning a day (laughs) Um, because 45 minutes, you can't plan anything. You're just putting out the fires. And in my case, sometimes it was a literal fire as when a student lit the trash can on fire. Um, You know, they're really, they're, they're responding to emails then, or, you know, talking to somebody in the office about a student or talking to the guidance counselor or whatever. Having amazing conversations like this about how to change things and make things better, right? Yeah. So, you know, I really, um, they need more time so that they can adequately plan for their students' needs. And so they can really talk to other teachers. I don't think people realize teachers don't get to talk to each other. I mean, other than like two minutes in the hallway um, when they're passing or at the copier machine when you're trying to fix it, they don't get a chance to really talk and say, you know, um, what problems are you seeing? How, you know, are the kids coming prepared? Do they know this standard? What more do you think I could do to adequately prepare them for the next grade level? Um, we just don't get enough time for things like that. So um, I think that would be very valuable. 
It's amazing. I, I want to come work in that school. And I, know that, <laughs> I know schools like that exist. We mm-hmm. need to start to amplify that. Yeah, you know, right. your, your whole message is, can you hear me now? You're, you're taking a message that exists and you're shouting it from the rooftop so that other people can hear what is, what is possible. You know, but I, w- I would be remiss in this um, if we didn't come back full circle and talk to Christopher. Okay. He started with Christopher. He started this journey for you, opened your ears, opened your eyes, right. started you on this path of advocacy, and then putting your boots on the ground, high heels on the ground, tennis shoes on the ground, whatever they were, when you mm-hmm. stepped into your classroom and said, I'm going to take this on head on. Where is Christopher now? Can you talk through that, yeah. that evolution? Um, he's doing great. He actually goes to the college of William and Mary in Virginia. Mm. He's a senior. So he's graduating hopefully (laughs) this year. Uh, I say hopefully just because we don't know yet if it's going to be a virtual graduation or in person. Um, he's an economics major and he's just doing great. That's outstanding. Thank you. Thank you for asking. No, that is outstanding. I, I, the listeners wanted to know, I'm sure it was like, (laughs) that's great. Thank you. Uh, so Suzanne, I'm going to wrap this up here with the same opportunity I'm, g- I'm going to give to you that I give to every single guest that comes on this show. You know, you shared so much. You shared nuggets of wisdom and truth. You dropped powerhouse um, conversation starters. You, you poked the bear. <laughs> you um, opened Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. But if people were, let's just visualize this, that you are speaking right now um, to the world. You are on this, the world stage right now with a microphone in hand and Every educator, every parent out there is listening to you speak, and they've heard everything that you have to say, and they're, 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 the wheels are spinning right now, but they know that your speech is just about done, and you've got that microphone in your hand, your elbow is starting to get raised up, and you're about to say something and then drop the mic and walk off the stage. Mm-hmm. What would you want to leave the crowd with? What would your words be that you want them to hear last? Yeah, um, change is possible Mm. and change begins with you. And, you know, it it can be overwhelming, especially trying to go up against a a large bureaucracy like the public school system. And you may think, how can I just, how can I, how can one person make a difference? And you can make a difference. Um, You know, that difference may start with your child. but if you keep speaking up and if you keep up the passion and the advocacy, it can translate into a difference for many other people and many other kids. And there is no, um, you know, I know when I did my, had my advocacy experience before with the hearing issue, you know, there were times where I felt like, oh gosh, I, I, I wanted in all schools, in all states. Um, but you have to appreciate that, you know, there is no amount of change that is really too small. Mm-hmm. Um, and helping a few people and changing things for a few people in their lives and improving it can translate into, you know, it's that domino effect and mm-hmm. it can really impact so many more people than you ever imagined. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Suzanne, you are absolutely incredible. I really, truly appreciate how you took one opportunity to change the life of your own personal kid and you've transformed it to not only changing the learning environment for kids across the country but now truly stepping up and saying and now i'm going to really confront the entire system Um, writing a book about it speaking out about it starting the conversations recognizing that the the change doesn't necessarily happen just with your words but by amplifying the words of so many others That, that really is the theme 
of, of your work is yeah. that it's not only can you hear me now, but it's can you hear us now? Mm-hmm. Can you hear us screaming for change from the rooftops and saying it's not good enough? Let's continue to make things better. So I appreciate right. you taking on that challenge and that charge and doing all that you're doing. Um, thank you. As a father of four kids, I am grateful. As a fellow educator, I say thank you for continuing to push, push us and to um, ignite within us this desire and this need to have conversation. So I am so grateful. For those people that want to continue this conversation with you, um, Mm -hmm. A, how can they find your book? Um, And B, how can they connect with you? Well, the book will be available on Amazon um, beginning February 9th. So please go there and and buy the book and and don't just read it, but talk about it. Talk Mm -hmm. about it with other people. You know, what did you learn from it? Even if it's something that you disagreed with, just start that conversation. They can learn more about me by visiting my website, which is SuzanneDemalley.com. And um, if they go to that website, there is a contact form if they want to reach out to me personally. Um, And I also have links to my social media on that website. Outstanding. And all of those things are going to be linked down in the show notes. So if you are one of those overachievers, if you're racing to the top and you want to be the, the best podcast listener, feel free <laughs> to go down there and check those, um, those show notes and those links, click them, um, follow her journey, check out her book. It's amazing. It will definitely stimulate some conversations. Start with the conversations around your dinner table, then take them to the office, take them to work and see where it goes. So right. Suzanne, again, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I appreciate the time you took to hang out with me tonight, oh, allowing us to, to have this great conversation. I already feel better and more empowered to go start the conversations. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Lasting Learning. Interested in learning more? Feel free to check out one of my books, like Making Assessment Work, for educators who hate data but love kids, or Bold Humility, or It's Like Riding a Bike, How to Make Learning Last a Lifetime. Just visit schmidto.net for more information, or feel free to check out Amazon.